All right, we're here. <laughs> Good, let's do it. Um, Chris and I, well, I guess first we're going to open a beer or two. You go first. You want this one? Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's see. Let's see. That was good. Nah, not at all. No? No. Okay, that was good for a start, I guess. <laughs> um, wait, cheers, and then cheers. let's talk coffee break science. Let's talk coffee break Thank science. You. First episode. And I guess we wanted to talk about RNA today. Yep. What is your mind, Chris? Pet project. What? My pet project? RNA. You're welcome. I guess it's my PhD project. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this all started. We had a, we had a, a question over coffee, which was, um, why does... Why do you have to act in the lab so much more precisely about keeping everything clean and getting rid of uh, certain enzymes and stuff compared to our colleagues who work with DNA? So it's really, why does why is RNA so sensitive? And what makes it so sensitive? Yeah, so I think people generally say RNA is very unstable molecule. And I think when I hear unstable molecule I think of like it's, it hydrolyzes or it's chemically unstable but RNA isn't really I think it's very stable like you can boil RNA for pure. at least half an hour pure RNA and pure water for at least half an hour and nothing happens to it like nothing it's kind I'm of shocked because that's not what I expected no I would not have yeah I did that and it's completely fine <laughs> but add <laughs> a bit of magnesium and the whole thing's going to shit oh. so that's one reason for chemical instability mm. the other um, is uh, high pH but actually that's none of the reason of course why we keep the lab clean the mm. reason for to keep the lab clean is um, our enzymes like RNAs is enzymes that we produce against viral threats against retroviruses I think but you have, to be honest at this point I don't know why RNAs are not DNAs or not also DNAs because there are also DNA viruses right Mm, sure. So go back. To the, our bodies are constantly producing these enzymes and pushing them out onto our skin. And That's at least what I understood, yes. All right. I guess, in a way, RNA is very ubiquitous in, well, in ourselves, in every cell, in every living being. That's why it's probably difficult to act against RNAs viral RNA, sorry, against viral RNA in the cell, so maybe that's why we do it outside, while mm -hmm. to defend against invading DNA in the cytoplasm is probably rather easy, because there is never any DNA in the cytoplasm of eukaryotic cells. Are there any DNAs? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there are... In, in the cytoplasm? I don't know. Yeah. You should Google that. We'll Google it. <laughs> <laughs> so it did Google that, and it turns out... DNA in eukaryotic cells is restricted to the nucleus and the mitochondria, as suspected. But sometimes it leaks, especially in certain diseases or cases of senescence. And that's why we have DNAs in the cytoplasm to degrade the DNA fragments that leak from the nucleus for whatever reasons. Yeah, that's the reason why we um, work, uh, keep the lab clean against RNAs, which is a bit more difficult than against bacterial contamination even mm. because RNAs are very stable molecules like you can boil them in 110 20 degrees under pressure and they might survive that oh, so what's in the little spray stuff you use this RNA zap I'm not yeah. getting any money for the <laughs> we do though if, if, if it's out there we <laughs> Indigen can send us a check next week yeah so what's that doing um, so I think it's denaturing proteins in general um, there is some SDS in there and I think 
I think some uh, zinc, but they don't actually tell you all the details. Yeah. It's for sure very irritating. You should not inhale it. Really? <laughs> you get a really nasty cough. Oh, fun. Oh, no. There we go. Yeah, and uh, very strong ethanol, like 95%. It's what we use usually. Okay. Which is more than you would use for bacterial or yeast contaminations, because I think they die most efficiently at 70%. Yeah. There's a lot of 70% around all that. Yeah. But, yeah, I think there's kind of two things you have to consider when you talk about instability of RNA, which is once the enzymatic instability or just the high pr um, abundance of RNAs, which might degrade it whenever you have it around in your lab. Um, on the other hand, the chemical instability, which is definitely higher than of DNA, because DNA is, I guess, one of the most stable molecules of all. Yeah, I'm sure that's nah. it's very stable. Let's for a say for a for a biomolecule, super stable. Yeah, I mean they dig up woolly mammoths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, while RNA is less unst uh, less stable, but this was actually something I wanted to ask you. I did, is has anyone done any like archaeology? Like people find DNA from woolly mammoths and try and uh, clone them or whatever. But has anyone ever found... What's the oldest RNA someone's found? Good oh, question. I don't know. I cannot answer that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, half an hour of superficial Googling later, I can say the oldest DNA. It's a bit difficult to say, but I guess there's definitely DNA from roughly a million years ago. However, people face issues with degradation from DNA this old. The oldest RNA ever found, however, is only 14,000 years old, which is really very old, but compared to the DNA we can still find today, kind of intact, at least fragments, it's really young. Yeah, so the chemical stability comes from, well, if you think about it, there's only one atom that's different between RNA and DNA. Mm -hmm. And if you look into biology textbooks and they, they highlight the differences between RNA and DNA, they talk about thymine uracil the different base, but actually it's only one methyl group that's one of the, okay, I'm gonna get a lot of hate for this now, sort of the least interesting chemical groups out there. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Oh. Um, there's a difference is one methyl group, so that's why I would neglect this difference. But the actual difference between RNA is the, the hydroxyl group and the, and the two prime carbon of the sugar. Mm, yeah. I mean, I mean, you know what this is, know, maybe not yeah. everyone knows, but in the end, it's just one atom that's different between RNA and DNA. And that's one oxygen. Which can then come in and attack the yes, exactly. phosphate so in, backbone. Exactly, under in high pH conditions. Yeah, once it's deprotonated, it yes. will come in and attack. Nucleophilic attack, right? Yeah. So this this kind of goes on to the more... The, the, the difference between RNA and DNA, Does is there a reason biochemically why you would use RNA to do signaling and moving around the cell and DNA to store the information? I guess if you only want the sequence, DNA is definitely the best choice, right? Yeah. So there's one more thing that comes with this um, extra atom, the two prime hydroxyl group, which is actually, I would say, well, it's one the, the chemical instability, but also it's structurally less stable. The lowest energy form of nucleic acids can only be formed by DNA, that's this B form, they call it. It's kind of like a squeezed helix, it's rather dense. Oh, double-stranded squeezed helix. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's the collected DNA helix, it's a B form. Right. And RNA can't do that, because the two prime hydroxyl would clash with the phosphate on the same base. Oh, That's right. why 
RNA is kind of doomed to a life of high energy states. Right. But it's also the reason why it's actually very interesting why it does all these very interesting secondary structures. Not only this helix, well, mm. when it does a helix, it's called an A helix, uh, A form, not alpha. Yeah. And then it does G quadruplexes and then DNA does G quadruplexes. Yes, that's true. <laughs> no, actually, it's completely true. Um, there's all kinds of interesting secondary structures that DNA can do, but doesn't, because DNA can make the B B4 helix, yeah. which RNA never can. Mm -hmm. That's why RNA is much more floppy and adopts many different structures in equilibrium, mm. which DNA, if the sequence allows it, doesn't. It's always in this B form, super stable. And then the most important thing is the structure. So would you say that in order... Uh, sorry, sequence, not the structure. Even, so in order to like move outside the nucleus and move around the cell, interact with the, the ribosome, does, do you think that more flexible form of RNA is intrinsically necessary? As messenger RNA? I don't think it's necessary. Because mm -hmm. messenger RNA is still... Uh, or the function of messenger RNA is its sequence. While for basically all other RNAs, I would answer this question with a clear yes. Like the ribosome, for example, forms this super complex structure with RNA in its core. And this is something DNA could never make. Just challenge you. I feel like that's oh, it. Wait, no, sorry. It's not necessarily true. It, DNA could adopt all these structures, but it wouldn't because it has a, always a lower energy structure to go to. Right. Yeah. more stable so RNA yeah. with this less stable structures can make much more interesting structures more likely to move into that exactly mm -hmm. because it doesn't have this very deep global minimum to fall into yeah. like if you consider from an energy landscape point of view that makes sense yeah. um, and then you have things like um, other regulatory RNAs like all these micro RNA things that were what structure is not fully understood <laughs> otherwise it would have a job and um, ribozymes, but ribozymes are a bit weird again. Do they way. are they out like in our cells? Are ribozymes working, or are they yeah. they are there are yeah. ribozymes currently keeping me alive? Yeah, yeah, every second. Uh, I think ribozymes are kind of interesting. Apart from the ribosome, there are other. Yes, there are other. Oh, right. um, not too many though. Yeah. So uh, when I started to work in the RNA field, people were like. And also, RNA can be enzymatically, act, uh, catalytically active, like enzymes. So it's like, since the RNA field is a bit of the underdog and always has to prove it's as good as the protein field, there's also this uh, this catalytic aspect. But if you look into it, RNA is, apart from the ribosome, only active on other RNA. Uh. Like it does not convert any small molecule, does not... Even take part in metabolism or any of these things. Pept protein, peptide stuff. Only peptide synthesis in the ribosome. There, oh, there's okay. some RNA bases are involved in this process. Oh, but otherwise, yeah. no. Like there's the splatosome, that's the other big RNA um, RN or ribosome machine, which cleaves and re-ligates um, messenger RNA to cut out exons and connect intro to these things. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of other RNA. This is RNA-sp, which I forgot what it does. RNA-sp is involved in uh, tRNA processing and maturation. Um, two things I quickly want to mention. The ribosome with the best name probably is the hammerhead ribosome after the hammerhead shark. I think that's kind of fun. 
And there's also something we call DNAzyme. That's a synthetically engineered ribozyme just made with a DNA backbone. However, this is purely synthetic and does not occur in nature, but very functional in the lab actually. Um, but it's all like cleaving and ligating of RNA. That's basically it. Right. But what we learn, or at least the what's being transmitted, like here as a student, as you get that this all the catalytic active RNA, but they all do the same thing, kind of. So it's not really comparable to pro proteins. Mm. Not saying RNA isn't important, but, but not the same thing. Yeah. So this comes like this is kind of interesting because there's this there's this whole RNA world hypothesis which claims that RNA forms the came first because it's the molecule that can both catalyze reactions and forms an information storage medium whereas DNA is the information storage medium and proteins are the catalytic systems and neither one can do both and therefore exist independently and in inverted commas, live. Um, and um, I have many questions about this idea. <laughs> first of all, I don't think there's any evidence to say that RNA came first. There's no, this is more based on the hypothesis that RNA can do both, therefore it, it must have come first. I think that's the, the one. Yeah, I think the, that's, that's why this hypothesis was formulated, right? Because yeah. RNA there is evidence today RNA can do these things and then people found RNA can self-template and can okay. make a second strand like a the temp uh, the, the yeah replicate and yeah ligate the, itself what's the other strand called Cont compl cont complementary strand hey, you do this PhD <laughs> <laughs> oh no um, RNA, so RNA can template can be a template for complementary strand under certain conditions. Mm -hmm. I think it's bit higher pH, bit elevated temperature, and a long time. Then this can happen. And and the phosphodiester bond yes, forms exactly. spontaneously. Spontaneously, which it doesn't happen if you did this with DNA. If you if you I'm replicate sure. the exact same experiment with a long stranded template and two shorter strands, and I don't know, boiled it for a week in water, if that's what. I think it's maybe too high of temperatures, but yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. I should, right? I mean, if you only look at the phosphodiesterbond, should be as good a leaving group on DNA as an RNA nucleotides. And unless that hydroxyl nearby acts as a sort of hydrogen bond donor and activating yeah, group to allow good, it to happen. Could could make sense, but I don't actually know. Mm. Um, also, something we should look up. In general, this RNA like world hypothesis. It is a hypothesis, and is well, absolutely. I mean, yeah. how would you know anything about the primordial Earth? Like, there's no system anywhere we can look and just like so. There's no window that you can open. And see, okay, that's how it looked like back then. <laughs> oh shit! Okay, you didn't know. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Um, the other one was that they found RNA bases formed in the where they make a proto soup and heated up and yeah, lightning through it but and they said they found RNA bases did they? yes um, they found amino acids they found amino acids as well but yeah, they found very old right yeah so this is this is why I'm not sure that the whole RNA came first 
hypothesis is true it probably was there there were amino acids possibly some dna bases the whole thing was a massive soup and something happened after that yeah Um, (laughs) so um i guess all these primordial soup experiments are very heavily criticized also within Mm. the field by competitors and whoever and i've been following this field a bit from the outside just just a bit and I had the impression people think everything is possible <laughs> and there are a lot of critics um, about these experiments, especially synthetic chemists who say this is all not possible, this doesn't make any sense from a synthetic perspective, you have to rethink this yeah, like, altogether. And well, to be honest, I have no idea, I think it's insanely difficult field to draw sound conclusions like what makes sense what is I'm not sure you I mean the caveat will always be we weren't there we couldn't see and we have no data to base it on so this is why I kind of asked you about whether what's the oldest RNA you could find right like you can find DNA in ice cores and stuff like this um, but they don't go back far enough these sorts of yes. to have some sort of data to base your experiments on it's different from astronomy where people have cosmic background radiation which well uh, biochemistry but in astronomy they had so one of the big uh, what were, were one piece of evidence for the RNA world was that I think they've seen the ribose sugar spectrum spectrum spectra, Spectrum. Spectrum. I guess. In uh, in gas clouds in space. So oh, really? they have they have sort of inferred then that some of the RNA molecules exist and are formed in space. The ribose, but not the deoxyribose. The the thing I read said said ribose. Yes. I think it was ribose. It was something like that. Actually, yes. um, and that maybe the Earth was seeded by comets filled with ribose this sort of <laughs> yeah. but again I mean how can you test that there's no, no way yeah. you can so from a chemical point of view so maybe that's more your expertise mm-hmm. if you look at carbohydrate chemistry each <laughs> single carbon <laughs> yeah, no, it's, very it's insanely complicated kind of chemistry but yeah <laughs> yes but at least okay if you look at nature mm. in biochemistry yeah. basically every Carbon in carbohydrate chemistry has an oxygen attached, uh, like a hydroxyl group attached to it, and that's kind of what a carbohydrate is, right? Mm-hmm. So now, why would there be a, a ribose that's missing one of the hydroxyl groups? Just one. The thing that makes sense. Yeah. And then also, if you look at the pathways today, how um, the oxyribose nucleotides are formed in the in biosynthetically. Yes. Yeah. In, living organisms this is really complicated yeah like basically our cells take RNA nucleotides ribonucleotides and make deoxyribonucleotides out of it by attaching some amino acids to it and then doing some reactions and then and you see do you see the elimination of the oxygen or it's a long process it's not a a single step um, synthesis takes a long time it's very complicated so I think that's kind of a point in favor of the RNA world hypothesis that I'm not sure if this but how's the RNA synthesized in the cell well I guess sugars are rather easy to convert into each other right there are many sugars out there but to take off a hydroxide group is not so easy yeah yeah 
unless it formed spontaneously at some point, but then life went and started to make the easier RNA and from then on DNA, but it sounds a bit complicated. Yeah, but this is where these experiments, like I just find it also in a way pointless. Like, it's great to chat about it and for well, us to sit here and shoot the yeah. shit about it, but what is it useful information? Can we. The science have to be useful. That's like. I mean, what's the point of studying the Big Bang? It's like. That's it's true. the same yeah. thing. I guess it's, it's science, it's accumulating knowledge. Yeah. But at least with the Big Bang, you've got the observational data to back your. take your hypothesis and test against. Whereas with yes. this proto Earth stuff, it's yes. not. That makes I mean, unless it very difficult. You start to see small civilizations of sentient beings in your round bottom flask. I'm not sure <laughs> no. that we can Probably not, infer no. much from our proto-life experiments. No, but I think the thing our field is struggling with is that, um, well, you can argue science mainly serves the purpose of accumulating knowledge and generating new technologies. In our case, medical stuff. In all of all sorts, mm. yeah, and of course, where RNA is very important again, especially the last twenty years or so. Um, and the excitement. The, I'm not sure. Is there anything using RNA out there in the world? E, what do we mean? Anything like Anyone? a drug? Like a drug? I think there's two or three the FDA-approved drug, drugs in the US that can t- that yes, use that RNA. Oh, yes, okay. or at least nucleic acids. Oh, okay. Hang on, because I, yeah, I'm sure there's DNA-based therapies, but not. I'm, I'm intrigued as to know whether RNA, given all the stability problems, whether someone has managed to make a make a FDA-approved drug. Um, I think not native RNA. No, I'm not quite sure. Modified RNA. Maybe. Yes, maybe it's chemically modified to make it. Yeah, I think it's a very narrow margin that you go here where. You keep the function of your RNA the same, but make it as stable as possible inside cells. So basically, what people do is they to take the blast all kinds of chemical groups on it, so they it to make it stable, right? Well, that's <laughs> no, but then the cell thinks it's DNA; it's going to do anything faster. It's like, oh no, I must be a virus. No, I mean um, people put all kinds of chemical groups on that confuse enzymes. Like, what is this? This is not RNA or DNA. I better, sure. better ship it off to like elsewhere. Yeah. Which doesn't really make it easier, I mean. Um, but in the end, no, what I want to say. Um, what makes these RNA drugs so unstable is, is, I think, I think you told me about it, right? What was it, someone else? The endosomal <laughs> escape uh, issue. I mean, this is a huge problem with all uh, DNA or all nano. Drugs. Some drugs depends how the drug is it enters the cell, but if it enters the cell via the endosome, you have to get once you're inside the cell, you're then trapped in the endosome. Okay, I'm gonna so, ask this question knowing none of us can answer it. Yeah, how can anything enter the cell without ending up in an endosome? Um, so or passive diffusion of things, but is that yes for larger molecules? Is that the major pathway? Uh, are you saying it in a biological? Are you when you say the word larger molecule? Are you saying that with a biologist hat on? <laughs> Not sure. Greater than a thousand yeah. Daltons? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yes. Uh, then for larger things, they're not going to penetrate the lipid membrane. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so I was just, on the smaller side, 
drug molecules mostly enter the cell via passive diffusion, mm -hmm. so that their properties are tuned so that they can both dissolve in water, yes. enter the lipid membrane, and then go into the cell. So they negate the whole endosomal escape problem. Yeah. But going on for molecular weights of about above a thousand Daltons, you start you can't do that. Um, and so yeah, then you'd have to go through some sort of endocytotic mechanism. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, you then end up trapped in a tiny cellular, well, a lipid membraned bag inside the cell. Which wants to ship you to the lysosome. Which wants to ship you to the lysosome. Where the, the landfill of the cell. <laughs> which the cell then bombards you with loads of oxidizing agents, peroxides, yeah. and enzymes. I think there are enzymes that enter Absolutely. it. And yeah. it tries right. to just turn whatever you've put in there to slag. Yeah. And that's particularly problematic with protein-based therapies, uh -huh. DNA-based therapies, and I assume RNA-based therapies as they're so unstable. Yeah, absolutely. So um, it's a huge problem that we're still trying to <laughs> trying to overcome. Um, yeah, but we don't even know if they get inside the endosomes and how they get out. So there are drugs that work and go in via the endosome, but actually um, imaging their presence and whether they're still whole inside the endosome or whether it's one of the breakdown products that's formed inside the endosome that then goes off into the... Oh, you mean if you attach some fluorescent tag yeah. and the thing is degraded, like your whatever you RNA no is completely yeah. degraded, only the, the fluorophore that can yeah. escape the, the endosome. So we lack the imaging techniques to be able to really see what's going on at that level. And we don't, I mean, we know it works or we statistic is statistically significant that this uh, this molecule or nanoparticle or whatever it is works but we don't know if it works in the way we think it works or if it just is going and doing something wholly un unknown are you leading me towards my next the next part of my phd project oh shit are you say, just saying this in a monster we could could consider it here <laughs> can you do whole cell anymore i don't know that's my phd project <laughs> I think you should believe this. this is very confidential. <laughs> Wait, yeah, um, actually. Well, what we didn't talk about is the pathways that RNA uh, that, that use for RNA therapy these days, because these are very interesting, mm -hmm. especially with CRISPR. Well, mm -hmm. anyone, everyone knows about CRISPR and why CRISPR is cool, but I think most people don't know there's an RNA guide in there. Oh yeah, it's kind of important. It gives you the specificity. Yeah, well, the recognition of the mm -hmm. DNA sequence. That's got, well, it's, but it's only one of the, the three big RNA, let's say nucleic acid-guided um, therapy routes that mm -hmm. are investigated these days. And I think for CRISPR, the RNA part is rather straightforward. Sits there like the ribosome. Hmm? Sits there, sits in there like the ribosome. Yeah, it sits in, in its protein, in, in yeah. the cast protein, and just like waits until it opens up some DNA and recognizes sequence, and then okay. But I think major issue, issues there are on the drug on the delivery um, mm. um, front, like basically for all drugs, right? <laughs> That's mm. not only CRISPR thing, but it's, uh, maybe not even especially for CRISPR, just for everything. Mm. That the delivery is the bigger issue. Yeah. Then in this case, the RNA stability. And also here people modify their RNA, but usually rather mildly, like thiophosphates, like replacing one of the oxygens with a sulfur atom on the backbone. Does that make them less hydrolytically? Yeah, I think enzymes just 
icons. Yeah. You can't see it. It's like, what are you? You're not Arnie. And then wandering off. <laughs> so they're just not sure how they degrade then. I guess then they're being shipped off as something unknown into the liver and then some other enzyme takes care of that. Some one of these zip yeah. enzymes. Well, just the like whole portion of this year. The whole cell dies off eventually. No, I think it's so far. I think usually when a, the cell cannot deal with a certain molecule, it's being, yeah, I think brought to the liver or the lysosome where harsher agents are used to just like. But how does the cell it know that it's not being able to deal with that molecule? Oh, like, I guess it. It can't time it. That's a good question. Yes, that's, I mean, too, that's that's too much. Yeah, I mean, my uh, my image of it is that that there is natural cell turnover. So, if the cell doesn't intrinsically identify it as a toxin and have a naturally formed bio, like biosynthetic pathway to destroy it or move it out, then it will eventually it will that will be in there doing its thing until the cell dies. And once the cell dies, it's because of it. But if it doesn't do anything, why would the cell die? No, the cell will die naturally. There's a natural cell turnover with everything. So once the cell has reached its natural end of life, it'll die and that thing will leave and go to the liver, like you said. Mm. But I don't think you can... I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe not. I know in the case of, like, certain toxins. Um, I know the example of theobromine in dogs you know that's the molecule in chocolate yeah. it's very similar to caffeine yeah yeah and can kill dogs yeah and it's because in the liver of certain breeds they lack some enzyme to convert it yeah so some other enzyme one of these sip cyp sip 450 something mm-hmm. converts it to something that's then toxic for the dog mm. because that's the other enzyme so there's just a bunch of enzymes which <laughs> sticks chemical group groups or molecules that are not dealt with otherwise to ship it off to the kidney so they can be excreted or mm. something like that to make it more soluble is that ubiquitin no that's protein degradation okay. ubiquitin is this, uh, just for protein. put on to- protein so it um, can enter the proteasome right this huge barrel structure yeah but you, it doesn't just ubiquitinate weird molecules. No, not yeah. only proteins. That's only, only for protein degradation, yeah. as far as I know. Wait, but we just moved away. How did we get here? Um, you were yeah, CRISPR. The enzymes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Even further. <laughs> uh, the CRISPR thing, the two other big pathways, which I personally found very interesting, mm. because I work with kind of both in the lab right now, are um, the risk-associated pathways, the risk is the RNA-induced silencing complex. That's the small interfering RNAs and the microRNAs. Mm-hmm. Well, one of them, basically, only disti- uh, distinction is that microRNAs are endogenous to us and siRNAs are not. I think that's um, again a viral defense pathway found in plants the first time, mm-hmm. where double-stranded RNA is degraded because it binds to this risk complex and the active enzyme there is called organot. Kind of funny. Good <laughs> Yeah, and this cleaves double stranded RNA or degrades one of the two strands. Um, it's kind of like a CRISPR thing, or the original purpose of CRISPR in bacteria, also viral defense, mm. only in plants. We have the same thing, but we use it for protein um, regulation. 
to hit down messenger RNA. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if there is too much messenger no. RNA, or for some reason a set of things that would downregulate whatever um, mm-hmm. enzyme or protein, mm-hmm. it expresses a short RNA, which will bind to the messenger RNA and degrade or stall the translation of said enzyme. So that's one of the pathways that's investigated heavily um, for pharmaceutical purposes right now. Um, microRNAs and siRNAs. It's kind of cool. But also, there people have issues with modification a lot. Hmm. And the other one is the RNAs H pathway. So are these people looking to modify these pathways as a, as a drug? Um, modify them using target or modified RNA or using small molecules to, to interfere with the actual complex? The, the no, they want to use RNA as a drug. Yeah, okay, cool. Which, yes. Would come in and interfere with it. Yes, exactly. So um, a lot of cancers are associated to upregulation of certain proteins. And if you think that's why this cancer can survive, people would, um, as a treatment, give the RNA that's complementary to a certain sequence of this protein's messenger RNA, which would then be degraded and whatever, do anti-cancer things. I guess that's one of the approaches. By down-regulating a specific messenger RNA that you know causes harm. This would be one way. The other way would be to deliver a DNA complement or heavily modified DNA complement, uh, which goes in the RNA's H pathway because that's an enzyme very similar to this argonaut protein, which degrades RNA, RNA, duplexes and the RNAs H degrades RNA DNA, the RNA in the RNA DNA complex. So that protein is naturally occurring, or would you need to bring that into the cell? No, we, we express that. We express that. Yeah. Okay. So we're not sure where and why it takes some role in mitochondrial replication. <laughs> but why it is in the cytoplasm, or it is, I think it might not even be in the cytoplasm, I think only in the nucleus and mitochondria. Because it, okay, might out of my confidence so level here. But <laughs> yeah, because there's no DNA in the cytoplasm. Not that I know of. I and think so it shouldn't. Once the DNA in your drug system, you get the DNA into the cytoplasm and it binds to the mRNA, or the mRNA, sorry. I think it works in the nucleus. Because oh. messenger RNA is also produced in the nucleus, right? So it can degrade just right there. In terms of a drug delivery problem, Getting into the cell and getting out of the endosome is one thing. Mm-hmm. Getting into the nucleus is even harder. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's fun. <laughs> <laughs> but I think one of the drugs that was FDA approved recently is one of these. Right. They call it the Gapmer. Because mm-hmm. it, it doesn't really make sense. Well, it kind of does, but it's not very easily understandable. And that's a strand of RNA, I'm guessing. DNA. DNA, this, this gap. Mm, well, both. And then also weird things. Because in the end, RNA and DNA only is distinguished by the two prime hydroxide things. So if there's nothing, it's DNA. If there's OH, it's RNA. If there's other things, it's what do you call it? What then? do you call it? Oh, nice. Yeah. Like, do you know nucleic lock, acid. Do you know lock nucleic acids? No, are they? That's a nucleic acid which connects the one, two, three, four, five prime hydroxide and two prime hydroxide where, where an ether. Oh yeah, I can under the sugar. Yeah, it's kind of locked in a certain. Yeah, 
and, they, and they still bind and are complementary to everything. Yeah, I think they are pretty good. I think the confirmation is locked in resembles RNA. I did look at weird versions of nucleic acids that people have tried to make with like peptide back. Oh backbone. yeah, this is super interesting. Yeah, super weird. They used other. So I think there's a glycol backbone one. One one um, going back to the sort of RNA as a first port of call for for the nucleic acids. There was also saying that that other sugars could have been the backbone and. Um, glycerol is the simplest of these um, mm. carbohydrates, and so uh, they they showed that you can use glycerol to make a make a nucleic backbone. But it doesn't do anything. I mean, the cell, like you said, like the cell doesn't have any clue what the yeah, what it, it is. But I mean, it acts. It it it, it is. It, you can form it. It can hold the different nuclear bases on it and it can form complementary uh, a complementary structure so it, oh really can it yeah I think that's what they showed do you know of these um, artificial base pairs people have been introducing in what in RNA and DNA but also then living organisms yeah that's kind of interesting like a it's different like different base purine or a new, not even purine yeah usually purine and a but uh, like pyrimidine something somewhat, else yeah. but I think the first of these too long ago, 2015 or 16, with the Nature publication, I think. So, um, it wasn't even base pairing, it was just like me kind of squeezing in there. Oh, but they yeah. used that, used that, well, they had two complementary bases, <laughs> and then had a tRNA which would recognize those in a codon, <laughs> and the tRNA was carrying an artificial amino acid which was then incorporated in peptide chain. So they had um, unnatural um, nucleotides being recognized and coding for an unnatural amino acid in bacteria. Super wow. cool. That's, yeah. It's like synthetic biology on a new level. Well, because there's a whole load of stuff where they're trying to make artificial cells um, where they completely engineer every aspect of the genome. But they start, start from scratch or modify whatever's there. Well, so this is where... The word artificial to me sounds like they should start from scratch, like completely new molecules yes. and whatever. But I think for biologists, they start they say that they've modified and in, and edited the entire genome in some way, so that the the, the entire although the, although the, it although the, it's although the uh, systems are based on natural. Are heavily influenced by the, by what exists in nature. Everything has been everything in the cell. Every piece of I don't even know if it's genetic and the envelope and stuff like this uh, has been affected by man, and that's why they're saying it's artificial. Mm. But it's like making a replica of the cell rather than making yeah, like, just totally, changing everything, and then it's not really new, right? Yeah. So not finding a whole new different information storage medium, a whole new enzymatic. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. system and protective coating and everything like that you just is this called synthetic biology this is yeah yeah I know this other field which is also synthetic biology who's the start really from scratch I think there are more chem more chemists like how can we make these vesicles which form bilayers and are permeable for certain structures and how can we make an energy pathway in there like can we make a single reaction that something is imported and exported and somehow there is an 
how do you say, um, ATP cycle in there, can we supply one molecule which does that and maybe an enzyme or maybe not. And that's, they really start from scratch. That's kind of interesting, but also really basic still. They're very basic. There's some really, it's quite fun to watch the videos of what they've managed. There's a guy uh, in Bristol, I think, Stephen Mann, mm -hmm. has created little um, clay or flakes of clay coated um, liposomes. Which clay. clay, they have these like, um, I forgot. Like the, the stuff you found on the ground. Yeah, so these sh sheets of the clay can, when you dissolve clay up, it forms these tiny nano-sized sheets, oh, uh, which are charged, and they can form around the surface of the um, uh, lipid vesicle. So this is like 200 to 1 micron mm -hmm. uh, um, micrometer-sized particles, which have an inside and an outside, and this clay layer forms quite a, a, quite a nice, strong... Um, delineation between the things and these things he's he's put in these ATP eating enzymes or enzymes that do certain things or catalysts or whatever and there's these videos of them uh, eating smaller versions of themselves and growing bigger mm -hmm. and um, other ones where they, they're chasing uh, Wait, do they eat color. or do they just merge well they membranes. merge and then use the energy inside the old, the smaller one to continue to uh -huh. have motive force and to move around so you Interesting. Could, I mean it's it, how far you call it eating is I don't know yeah, but sure. but yeah and it's quite fun to watch them so they are completely synthetic wholly derived I mean maybe the enzymes might be um, yeah. based but the uh, yeah but the systems involved are artificial and they show some lifelike qualities oh, which is quite fun to watch yeah well, Is that how we're going to end this? Let's call it a day. Let's call it a day. Nice.